Greetings, I'm Jean Mizutani. Welcome to today's edition of Disability Inc. Today we will discuss the landmark Andrew F. Case with special education attorney Steve Alizio. Steve is a special education attorney in private practice and former Include NYC junior board member. He taught in a public high school on Long Island for seven years before earning his JD from the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Jean. Great to be here. On March 22, 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a unanimous opinion in the case Andrew F. versus Douglas County School District. In that case, the court interpreted the scope of the Free Appropriate Public Education, FAPE, requirements in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act idea. FAPE is the most important entitlement under IDEA, so this is a big deal, a game changer. Steve, I have so many questions about this case. I'm thrilled to have you here to help us unpack it. What was it about? Right, so Andrew F. was a case about a child with autism. Uh, he had received annual IEPs in the Douglas County School District in Colorado from preschool through fourth grade. And by fourth grade, his parents had really felt that he wasn't making progress academically or functionally, and there was significant behavioral issues that weren't being addressed. So uh, at the point of the proposal for the IEP for the fifth grade, uh, the parents felt that, that that IEP resembled very much the same IEPs from the previous school years. Um, they were very upset about that, and they thought that there needed to be a, a much bigger change in the IEP in order for their child to make meaningful progress. And so. Um, they decided to remove Andrew from the, uh, the school district and to place him in a private school specializing in students with autism. The, the school is called the Firefly Autism House. Um, and when he was there, he made tremendous progress. Uh, and the parents then sought reimbursement for tuition at Firefly, uh, as it was their contention that the Douglas County School District had failed in its responsibility to provide Andrew with the free appropriate public education that he's entitled to under the IDEA. Wow, that's quite a case. Um, it is a long way to go before a parent reaches the Supreme Court. What legal actions and steps did they take? Yes, so certainly uh, to get to the Supreme Court, it takes a long time. Uh, I, I, I mean, this, it was fifth grade, I think he, I think it was in 2010 if I remember correctly, that the, that he was in fifth grade and then of course, you know, seven years later is when, when the, the decision <laughs> comes out from the United States Supreme Court. It is, it is um, something that takes quite some time. Uh, and what happens is under the IDEA, parents have to go through, um, I mean, they, they could try mediation if they want, but typically uh, with respect to litigation, there's an administrative level um, where you have a hearing, okay? Um, and New York State, all, all states are different. New York State has a two-tiered um, administrative level, so there, there's a, an impartial hearing uh, procedure, and then there's potentially appealing to the state review officer if you are unhappy with that or if the district's unhappy with it. Um, in Colorado, I think it's just a single tier, I believe, that they just had the one administrative hearing. Uh, so in Andrew F's case, uh, the parents had lost at that administrative hearing, uh, and then they decided to appeal, and they went to federal district court. And the federal district court had also agreed with the, with the administrative law judge, 
and said that they did not find that the um, that the district had failed to provide the child with a free appropriate public education. Uh, they then the parents then appealed further to the circuit court, uh, which was the Tenth Circuit, which uh, Justice Gorsuch was was sitting on at the time, uh. and he was involved in in the decision as well. Um, and the Tenth Circuit also had said uh, that the district had not, uh, the school district had not failed in its obligation to provide the child with a FAPE. And I mean, really, we'll probably get into this in a little bit more mm -hmm. soon, um, but that's what this was really about going to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's going to hear a case when there is um, oftentimes a circuit split. So meaning that, you know, different regions of the country have uh, different courts that will listen to appeals. Uh, so you go to the federal district court, they might say something and you're not happy with that decision, you go to whatever your circuit court is. Um, in New York, we are a part of the Second Circuit, right? And Colorado is part of the Tenth Circuit. Uh, the Tenth Circuit had a very not, not parent-friendly sort of understanding of the previous standard that was, was produced by the United States Supreme Court 35 years ago um, right. before this case. Right. So, wow. So these parents lost three times in a row, and then they decided to appeal to the Supreme Court. Yes. That's amazing in itself. Now, I know that this is a topic that's very interesting to many of our parents because just about everybody I know is familiar with the law idea, and we always think that it's written, and there it is, and it's crystal clear. But it isn't crystal clear, and it was a surprise to me to recognize that sometimes the real interpretation comes through subsequent litigation. Tell us more about that. Right. So certainly the law is difficult to make the law clear, uh, especially in this area of the law, from my opinion, because we're talking specifically about an individualized educational program, mm -hmm. right? An IEP is meant to be looking specifically at the unique needs of a particular child. Uh, and so how do you make bright line rules to say what is appropriate for a child? And that's really what the, the United States Supreme Court was taking up in Andrew F. Um, and I mean, maybe this might be an appropriate time to, to mention the previous time that the United States Supreme Court had addressed the issue of what a FAPE or free appropriate public education is. Um, and that was back in this, this Rowley case, which was in 1982. So 35 years before, um, before this, this case was heard, Andrew F. was heard, and nothing happened in between, right? So uh, in, in this Rowley case, the facts were very different. Um, in Rowley, we were dealing with a, a student who was deaf, right? She had a very high cognitive potential. I believe she went on to get a PhD eventually. Mm -hmm. So in, in that particular type of case, the court was looking to say, well, the, a child is entitled to a program that will, is reasonably calculated to confer educational benefit upon the child. And in that case, the, the, the girl was moving very easily from one grade to the next because she was just cognitively so smart. Um, and the parents had challenged anyway, saying, well, you know, because she's deaf, she's missing a lot of things that are happening in the, in the class that she wouldn't be missing had she not been deaf. Right. Um, and they wanted us to an interpreter for, the, for that reason, but they didn't get it. And um, so that, that's what that kind of case was about there. Well, that case was really about maximizing potential. And as a parent, I certainly understand any parents' desire for that. Um, but this was very different because this, the Andrew F. case was about a child that had a significant cognitive disability. 
Um, so I guess this is why the Supreme Court accepted this case. Why do you think they accepted it to hear it? Right, that's that's a great point. So, um, because of the the fact pattern, of, you know, in Rowley, the, the courts typically don't like to pass judgment on things that are not before them. And in that case, they didn't they weren't dealing with a student with significant right. cognitive mm-hmm. uh, impairment. They were dealing with a student um, who was deaf and you know maybe did not have the same opportunity as non-deaf students, but she was capable of easily passing from one grade to the next. And so they, they deemed that to be reasonably calculated to confer educational benefit upon her. Right. What it didn't address was, was questions like in, in Andrew F., um, where you have an autistic child who, who is not able to, to reach the same level of um, potential and, and can't maybe meet those goals to go from grade to grade. And so that's why uh, before Andrew F., for those 35 years, the different circuit courts were having differences of opinions as to what level of progress was necessary um, to be providing educational benefit. Um, and I guess uh, the 10th Circuit had a very non-parent-friendly uh, version of that, the most non-friendly you could get, really, which was mm-hmm. merely more than de minimis. Um, you know, some, that basically saying any any little bit of progress any at shred, all, any, any shred, shred of progress, any shred of progress, not just more than de minimis, which means like yeah. more than nothing, but merely more than de minimis. So uh, that's where the Supreme Court said, look, some of these circuit courts are are taking this interpretation. Others are saying that there has to right. be something a little bit more. We need to get the everybody in this country on the same page as to what constitutes educational benefit. Got it. So there was a lot of ambiguity and no one really knew what reasonably calculated to confer benefit meant. The courts were divided. Um, Some courts said some benefit, others said meaningful benefit. There was a split and that's where Andrew F. picks up. Correct. Mm. So we know that FAPE is different now compared to as it was previously defined. How would you define the level of benefit that a student is entitled to now under Andrew F? Right. So um, I, I guess it's it's interesting. I don't I don't know to say that fate is different. Um, it's it's the interpretations, right? Interpretation. And that and that, that is that is what that's what happens with law. It develops and it, it can you know organically change over time, right? So that's the purpose of of the the Supreme Court hearing this. And so um, the Supreme Court's holding in Andrew F was that uh, the district is required uh, to provide an IEP or an educational program, quote, reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances, end quote. So um, that's the idea here that uh, previously, and, and we did discuss this idea of potential, uh, mm-hmm. p- a child unfortunately is not entitled to reach their potential, right? So that's something that kind of was looked at when they were at the rally case, and, and a child is not entitled to the best possible program to reach potential. Um, but I think that with Andrew F., the court is, is kind of hinting at the, the fact that um, look, even if a child's not entitled to reach their potential, their potential matters in determining what's reasonable, um, reasonably calculated to confer educational benefit on that particular child. So we have to know what is this child capable of, um, and when we 
kind of look at that, that's when we can determine whether or not there's a, the IEP is reasonably calculated to confer that educational benefit. Right, and they also emphasized that um, the requirement that every child should have a chance to meet challenging objectives. Was that new? Yes, so I think that's, I, I mean, I think they did emphasize that more so. Um, and that goes along with that idea of potential and, and being, uh, this idea of being reasonably calculated in light of the child's circumstances. That's the big emphasis. And so challenging objectives is, yeah, in light of the child's circumstances. So for some students that are in the regular classroom, um, meeting grade level requirements is challenging enough. Mm -hmm. um, in other cases, some, some won't even be able to meet that. And so they have to look at what is this child capable of and what makes sense to say should be ambitious goals. For so the yes, individual. yes, the individual is now entitled, I think much more so, um, it's clear that they're entitled to ambitious goals. How significant is this ruling? I think it's very significant. Um, it's still, I'm, it's been a couple of years, but it's, uh, you know, that's not that much time. If you really think about it, it took 35 years to go from right. rally to get back to the Supreme Court hearing this. Um, it, this is certainly something that is upping the standard. Um, it's clarifying for, for those circuit courts and um, lower level courts that are that previously had this interpretation that uh, there just had to be a merely more than de minimis. That is, that is now made clear that is not the case. Um, and so it's it's important because it, it should allow parents to realize going forward when they're going to IEP meetings, for instance, that they can push a little bit harder um, to say, my child's entitled to uh, ambitious program, you know, uh, goals and objectives that are ambitious in light of this child's circumstances. Um, and they can, you know, bring with them providers and have people supporting what the kid is capable of. Uh, and so I think it's important that we have that Supreme Court decision to kind of help support that notion. What are the signs that a student is not receiving FAPE? There could be a lot of signs that the student's not receiving FAPE. Um, a lot of times, I mean, if, you're, if your child's getting left back or there's a promotion and doubt letter that's being sent home, um, then clearly there, there's something going on. They're, they're not able to, to meet the criteria that they're supposed to meet to move on. Um, that's, a, that's a sign that perhaps, you know, they're not being provided with a fate. Uh, it also could be if you're seeing, which is similar to what happened, I think, in Andrew F., right? Uh, in Andrew F., the, the IEPs, are the goals in the IEPs, and the IEPs are looking pretty much the same mm -hmm. year after year. And if the child is not progressing, and if the goals are not really changing, um, then that means, you know, they're probably not receiving a fate. It's eye-opening, isn't it? Absolutely. So the phrase, in light of the child's circumstances, um, would indicate to me that in order for IEP teams and parents to apply new standards, high-quality evaluation material is more important than ever before. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it's, it's like I just said, I think they, parents now need to be more vocal um, in, in what they're asking for and, and um, can push back a little bit. Uh, with what the district might offer, uh, saying, wait a second, you know, I don't think this is ambitious enough for my child. They can have providers or other professionals that can 
participate in the meeting, um, which they're entitled to have. And, and those people can also help support and say, look, this, you, you might be saying that this child's making some level of progress, but it's not appropriate because this child can do so much more. And these are the reasons I know this child can do so much more. Wow. Um, I think it's sometimes challenging for parents to obtain really high quality um, neuropsychological evaluations or other independent evaluations. What is the best way for a parent to supplement the evaluation package developed through the Department of Education? That's a great question. So um, I think that a lot of times when I have clients come to me or potential clients come to me, uh, it's, it's clear that their child is not getting what the child needs, right? Um, th that's often when I'm getting my phone calls. Uh, but then the question is, well, what does your child need, right? We might know that the program that they're in is not appropriate, mm -hmm. but it's really important for the parents to know what their child needs. And when we're talking about appropriate in light of their circumstances, we need people to be able to say, well, what is appropriate in light of their circumstances? We have to have some data. We have to have some facts. We have to have some experts that can help with that. Um, so. When the school district uh, provides an evaluation of a child, in, in New York City anyway, I will say that typically they're not that thorough of evaluations in general. I'm not saying that that's necessarily always the case, but mm -hmm. a lot of times that is the case. Um, and if it's not thorough enough for some of these students, a parent is allowed to challenge it, right? They can, they can send a letter to the Department of Education. They can say, look, we disagree with this evaluation. We don't feel that it thoroughly assessed our child in all areas of the suspected disability, which is what the law requires. And as such, we are seeking an independent educational evaluation that we would like to have conducted at public expense. Um, so that, that is what's called the, the IEE, or Independent right. Educational Evaluation Process. Uh, it's not it's not that easy sometimes sometimes you submit that letter sometimes the district will will um, send in what's called an assessment authorization form in response uh, which will give a list of providers and they, they're saying look here's here's a neuropsychologist that that might be able to do this for our rate um, I, I just say to parents just be careful with that there's some excellent providers on that on that list but you have to look and make sure that they're going to be able to do as thorough of a job, that they're going to be able to do it as quickly as you need, um, because there's some strings that are attached sometimes with, with that particular form, and the rate that they give is often not enough to, to have the... A quality of yeah. Right. Now, how, how can a parent assess that? I know that when I was looking for independent evaluations for my daughter years ago, I tried to get a sample evaluation from an evaluator with redacted personal information so that I could get an idea how long did it take to conduct, how comprehensive was it, how many pages was it. I mean, it's not easy asking the evaluator to show you a report like this. How can a parent assess the quality of the report they're signing on for? Right, so that's a great question. I mean, honestly, I think asking around and getting people's opinions on it is important. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, potentially reaching out to include NYC if they have a list. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not you guys do um, specifically have that or potentially touching base with attorneys. Attorneys like myself oftentimes will do um, free consultations and might give some right. ideas on that. I think it's the, the evaluator is incredibly important because it goes beyond just um, figuring out what your child needs this is somebody who's going to be able to help advocate for you, right? When, when we get these independent educational evaluations, 
Um, as part of it, really, these evaluators are willing to participate in IEP meetings on behalf right. of the parent. School they, visits. Yes, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do the school visits, the classroom observations, which right. typically at the DOE's rate, they're not going to do that. Right. right. They're not going to observe the kid in the classroom. They're not necessarily going to participate in the IEP meetings as much. They're not necessarily going to want to testify at the hearing um, if necessary. Right. So, so I mean... For me, if I have a client that might come to me and ask for an evaluator, I like to only refer people that I've worked with, that I've seen, or that I at least know that other competent attorneys that I trust have worked with. Exactly. Now, we do have a list, but I want to get back to the IEE for a moment because we were talking about how a parent could make that request in writing to get authorization for the independent evaluation, but you were cautioning the parent that that may not give them everything they wish so we're assuming that anyone on that list is not going to want to testify at a hearing. Are we assuming that? I'm not. I'm not going to say that necessarily. I mean, frankly, I'll be honest. I have a little bit Probably less. Probably not. <laughs> I have. I have less experience with working with them because right. of the fact that I don't like the strings that are necessarily attached to that. Um, I think my understanding is that they have to give their evaluation, a draft of it, to the Department of Education first for the department to potentially review. They're going to be hesitant to include certain recommendations because they are, I mean, it's supposed to be independent, but they are contracted with the DOE. So that's that's a little different. So um, I'm not going to say that they won't necessarily testify at hearing, but I, I just... It's less likely. Now, a draft? Now, I'm, I'm curious about that. I can definitely understand them providing the Department of Education with a copy of the evaluation because, in truth, it's owned by the Department of Ed since they paid for it. But you're saying a draft? To me, that would be really shocking because that would make it open to tampering and manipulation, and that, that doesn't exactly sound... I, yes, I don't. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to say for. I don't want to say for certain that that's what it is. I, I've heard that that may be something that is is potentially done. Um, it's yes, I, and to be very clear, even if you get the independent educational evaluation through right. a provider like I do, um, you have to provide that to the Department of Education. Of course, they you know they're paying for it. They're entitled to it. Um, so that is something to consider because if you did want to get your own evaluation without providing it and possibly not providing it to the Department of Education, you can pay for your own evaluation and keep it. And keep right. it. And if you do yours. and nonetheless, mm-hmm. if you do decide to provide it to the Department of Education, they are legally um, responsible for taking it into account. Um, they are supposed to consider it nonetheless, um, no matter what. To consider it. Okay. So I just want to go back to the IE one more time because parents often don't have the resources for the expensive independent evaluation. Now I have seen occasionally that parents can put together a packet that in the end is fairly robust. So the child might be seen by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, might have a remedial tutor or some other professional that can create some information and they can supplement the file in this way. Have you seen that being successful in cases? I, th- I mean, I think that you can do that in certain cases. Um, more comprehensive neuropsychs might not be as necessary. Uh, than in others. It really depends on the specific facts of a case. Um, I, I think, yes, you can definitely do other levels of that. But like I said, I mean, I, th- I think that as a matter of course, if the Department of Education hasn't provided an appropriate evaluation, you sh- the parents should be able to get a neuropsych um, mm-hmm. and they should be able to get it at the district's expense. I will also say that there are some uh, organizations that provide free 
neuropsychological evaluations. Um, there's different types. Of, there's a Promise program I'm familiar with. They, Columbia, they do that yes. at Columbia. They they Great do reputation. that right. Um, there, there's some other there's some other ones as well. Uh, and so there there are some resources, and I think that's some you know something where parents can definitely reach out to include NYC to see if they know that or to turn sure. us to see. But but there are definitely options to get it um, where you're not paying out of pocket. So I want to ask you for a strategy. Um, what if a parent has requested the IEE, and as you say, they say, yes, here's your list that you can go to. Is there ever an opportunity for the parent to negotiate and say, I'd like to use such and such evaluator that is $4,500, please authorize this amount? How would that work? Right. So that's that happens frequently. Um, the and Even when I write in a letter on behalf of a parent, sometimes the Department of Education will respond by giving us an assessment authorization form. Uh, typically, the form says it's $1,000 for a neuropsych, but then they'll cross that out and they'll say $2,500 or they'll say $3,000 or $4,000 or $4,500. I mean, they'll they'll say all this. So they can amend it any way they they, wish. They they really do. They don't have Uh, a really formal um, rate criteria, which uh, is something that comes up in hearings at some sometimes. Interesting. But I, I, I think, yeah, you know, the parents could try and push back and say, look, Here's the thing. The parent is does not have to use a provider that is on the department's list. They do not need to do that. They are entitled to use an evaluator that they are comfortable with, mm-hmm. um, so long as that provider's not quote unquote unreasonably expensive. So, and that's the burden on the Department of Education to show that a parent's evaluator is unreasonably expensive. So, I, I've had cases where the DOE might have offered um, forty-five hundred dollars, and I said, "Well, the evaluator that the parent is requesting is fifty-five hundred dollars. Right. Do you want to try and deter- show that that's unreasonably expensive? That that's your burden to do." That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. We haven't gotten into it as deeply as this yet, so I'm really excited to be talking about this with you. Now, going back to the Andrew F. case for a minute, I know that behavioral considerations were part of that case. Right. In what way? Well, the, the child had a lot of behavioral issues that weren't being addressed previously. From my understanding, and I don't, I don't know if the, I don't recall the, the case going into the details of this too much, but my understanding was that there was not a behavioral intervention plan in place throughout those years, notwithstanding significant behavioral issues. Um, when the child went to the Firefly uh, program, he did re- start receiving a behavior intervention plan and his behaviors, he made tremendous progress with respect to behavior. So in the public school, no intervention plan. At Firefly, an intervention plan. Okay, so that's a pretty stark comparison, none to one. But very often in the public system, there will be a behavior intervention plan, but it, it isn't very useful. It isn't very efficient, and the child doesn't really benefit. What about situations like that? Right. So, uh, again, this could turn into a another independent educational evaluation issue. I. The Department of Education, sometimes they do a functional behavioral assessment and create a behavior intervention plan based on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes, they're not very thorough. Had a client recently tell me that, um, you know, during an IEP meeting over the course of 15 to 20 minutes, the Department of Education asked the parents some questions, and they called that the functional behavior assessment. Oh, wow. Um, And then there's some kind of plan based on that. I mean, it's completely inadequate and insufficient. And so in that type of case, I I say, that's not not okay. Um, And when I'm filing my uh, due process complaint to say that the 
DOE has failed to thoroughly assess this child in all areas of suspected mm -hmm. disability. The parent is disagreeing with the functional behavioral assessment that was created. Mm -hmm. um, and here's a provider that can do a tremendously more thorough job doing like a full day observation, writing a 20 to 30 page report as opposed to the one page report that might be done by the DOE. Um, and you need to pay for that uh, so that we can get to the bottom of what this child needs. Well, that's truly incredible because I think behavior is one of the number one reasons for change of placement to a more restrictive setting. And I think it's also one of the number one reasons that the Department of Education points to why a child isn't progressing. So a parent might say, my child is not making progress. And the school might say, you know, take him for medication. His behavior is out of control. And of course, he's not available for learning. At a moment like that in time, what should the parent do? Yeah, so I, I mean, and before I answer that specific question, I, I'd like to, it just reminded me of the fact of emphasizing that the child's entitled to make social, emotional, and academic progress, right? So it's not, this is a problem that I see very frequently. We have child find um, violations oftentimes, you know, the Department of Education has a duty to find children that might need special education services. And when they take students that are, you know, have a high cognitive capacity mm -hmm. and are able to progress, you know, relatively easily, they don't think that there's a problem. But sometimes there's behavioral issues that are impeding their the child's ability to make real progress emotionally and socially or whatever else. And, you know, this brings us into Andrew F. and the idea of the potential, right? And appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. Right. But going back to your question, uh, if, if that's problematic, the behaviors are problematic and, and they don't know what to do, um, this, is, this is where they should start communicating their concerns with the Department of Education. Oftentimes it's nice to have things in writing so that there's a, there is a record of it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Potentially requesting a, a more comprehensive independent functional behavior event, uh, uh, assessment and behavior intervention plan. And if these things don't work, saying, look, the program needs to change. Um, the child's pro problems are persisting. If, the, if, you're, if it's persisting, then you need to change it. And eventually, if that's still not working, then we have to figure something else out. And that's why, in a case like Andrew F., you can potentially get reimbursement for private school. Because if the Department of Education is inequipped to provide an appropriate public education within its public school system, well then it's gonna to have to fund the private school tuition where it can happen. Right, even though it took them seven years. Even right. though it took, that, yeah, so. It's seven a, years, not, a, not for the faint of heart. Yes, um, fortunately, uh, that doesn't, that is an anomaly and it's not something that is usually that long of a process. The process, the process is emotional for parents. Um, it is not as swift as we would like it to be. Right. Um, you know, in New York City, unfortunately, it seems that, uh, you know, it's, it, there's a lack of, of um, hearing officers. Their capacity, you know, they only can take on so much. There's, there's the yeah. attorneys that are looking and investigating whether or not to sell cases. They have an enormous caseload. And it just, the, the process is just, un, unfortunately, very slow. It's but it's not a seven-year type of thing, usually. Right. right, but there are systemic shortages all along the food chain. I mean, this yes. is why these cases even go to hearing is the hearings are because there are shortages. If they had the appropriate evaluator for the FBA, maybe Andrew F. would have been fine. Right. in a public school, but that didn't happen. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned something very interesting because we do get a lot of calls about kids 
that are very intelligent. They may be gifted, but they may have certain behaviors that do impede on their ability to participate successfully in school. And they're kind of um, a subgroup that's difficult to serve. I know that schools don't like uh, doing FBAs and creating BIPs unless it's part of the special education referral process. They might be offering some sort of support through response to intervention if the school's doing it. But if not, it's a problem. What could you advise for a parent like that? So I think, again, the, if the district is, they might not want to do a functional behavioral assessment. They may not want to do a behavior event intervention plan, and they might not find that the child is um, eligible for special education services because the child is smart and doing well mm-hmm. um, academically. And I mean, I think at that point, if, if they're really not happy, you reach out to an advocate or an attorney to, right. to discuss what the next potential steps might be. Um, there could be the possibility of doing a mediation with them. I mean, when, when they start mm-hmm. stepping up with, with advocates or attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, the, the district might say, okay, well, we'll do it now, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, if that's what's going on. Uh, but that's, that's really the recourse, I think, eventually. Do you see many kids without IEPs that have behavior intervention plans, formal plans? I personally don't have many cases like that, um, though I will say I, I, I do, I more so, I, I have some recent calls and cases uh, with families who do not currently have an IEP, mm-hmm. um, even though it seems clear that they should, <laughs> right. and will challenge the evaluations that were conducted and will say this child needs a comprehensive neuropsych and they need a com- comprehensive functional behavioral assessment and a behavior intervention plan. Um, you know, I mean, cases where they might be getting suspended multiple times and yet exactly. somehow they don't have exactly. the, these things. So uh, a lot of times th- th- there's different ways you can go about these cases and different attorneys do things differently. Right. You could file a big comprehensive sort of case going at the denial of a free appropriate public education, right. saying that the department failed in its child find responsibilities, that they should have evaluated this child first. But frankly, a lot of times in that type of circumstances, what mm-hmm. I personally would do is say, you know what, let's figure out what this child needs. Right. It seems like they probably do need an IEP. Let's request independent educational evaluations. Let's challenge, because the parents at that point would have already referred their child for special education services. The DOE would have done some type of evaluation. At that point, we could look at that evaluation, which obviously said that the child's not entitled to special education services. We would then say, okay, we're challenging that. We want these comprehensive evaluations, the neuropsych, the FBA, the BIP, right? Get that paid for, get that done. When we have that done, we give it to the Department of Education. Department of Education then needs to convene a new meeting to determine eligibility, likely they will have determined eligibility at that point. Um, And at that point, you can then file a larger complaint to say that this child had been deprived of a FAPE for the previous school years. They might be entitled to something called compensatory services, which means makeup services. Um, And it could be that they have a case going forward for some other type of program. Right. Now, ideally, though, you'd want to do it as easily and as quickly as you could. So if you had a disagreement with the Department of Ed says the child is ineligible, parent feels that he is eligible, you could simply start by going to mediation. 
to see how that works out. You, yes, I mean you, you can certainly you can certainly try that. You can. I mean, I, a lot of times that the question when they're saying it's not eligible, the question comes down to the evaluations, right? Because it's right. the evaluations that are saying that they're they're not. So you can you can request the independent evaluation, and then you can seek mediation through that stage, possibly, um, if if that's what you want to do. Right. So you could challenge the evaluation or the outcome. Right. Either way. Sure. Um, how helpful is a 504 in a situation like this? Where I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of 504s a lot of times because, unfortunately, uh, people within the school district don't take it seriously. They don't think that it's, it has any weight or teeth. Um, they, they ignore it. I, I've had sometimes school personnel tell clients of mine that they don't have to follow it because it's not an IEP. So, uh, you know, I, I, if you could get an IEP instead, I, I, a lot of times I think that's the, the thing that is a little bit stronger to, mm-hmm. to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I frequently I'll have clients that might start out with a 504, clearly not sufficient, it's not being met, and then we need to get the IEP. Um, so can a 504 work? Sure. Uh, if you get the stars aligned, right? Um, if you have teachers and, and faculty and people that are going to take it seriously, for some students it might. But um, the preference is typically the IEP. Gotcha. Now I want to talk about due process rights for a moment. Now in a case like Andrew F., this would have had to have gone to an impartial hearing and above because it was a tuition reimbursement case. I know the New York City Department of Education will not mediate around tuition reimbursement cases. But in general, I personally feel that mediation is helpful because you're actually having a conversation at a meeting which is not chaired by the Department of Ed. It's actually hosted by the mediator, and to me that changes the dynamic. Have you seen cases at the earliest levels being resolved through mediation? Specifically for tuition reimbursement? Not for no? Tu- no, in general, because we talked before about a BIP that wasn't sufficient or something like that. Let's keep it on a more basic level like that. Yeah, I, I personally don't handle mediation much. I just, it's not, I, 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 if a parent's coming to me, I, I think I can go a little bit more aggressive right off the bat, and I think I'll get more and more quickly um, than through mediation. I'm not saying that you can't, uh, go the mediation route and mm-hmm. get things done. I, I will say that I, I have clients that have come to me after unsuccessful mediations or mediation right. is done and then it's not really being followed properly. It's, it's um, I'm not saying that, depending on the circumstances, depending on the level of urgency, depending on a lot of things, it might not be a bad thing to go the mediation route first. And if that doesn't work, it doesn't mean that you can't do a due process right. complaint subsequently. Exactly. You retain all of your rights. I, I think the key to many cases is um, when there's a problem, address it immediately. Don't let it fester. If there's a decision you're unhappy with, a recommendation you're unhappy with, don't let it fester. And then two years later, everything explodes. You know, You could address it then through mediation. So I think the parents that come to you might have different goals. They're not at their first initial dispute, which could be resolved at mediation. There's something bigger, or I think in many cases they already know, you know, which way the arrow was pointing. They're looking for a non-approved school, and it is tuition reimbursement, which, as we've mentioned before, can't be mediated. But I just want to point out, because, you know, when parents hear about impartial hearings, when they hear about the seven years that Andrew F.'s parents took to win their case, 
it's easy to feel helpless. Parents will be like, I'm having trouble finding an attorney. I made 10 calls. Nobody called me back. It's not that easy. So I'm hoping that one of the takeaways today would be that at the initial stages of dispute or disagreement, they try to get help the easiest way they can. And is it going to help everybody? No. But it might help some. And so for those, I'm happy. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the impartial hearing cases. Okay. Um, so the process, I guess, is what you're, you want me to get into, a little mm -hmm, bit of the process please. of impartial hearing. Um, and before I do that, just to really quickly comment on the, the mediation aspect uh, again, is I think that it could, for a lot of, a lot of people, like you, you suggested, be helpful. I think parents just need to understand what it is that they might be accepting at that point. Because that's the problem, I think, that you know, a, a parent might be going in without having the support of an attorney or, or anything mm -hmm. and not know what they might otherwise be able to get and then they agree to something that is not necessarily going to be what they could get otherwise so it's it's just and it might be fine it might be that that's all they need so that's just something to i wanted to to point out um but with respect to the impartial hearing uh you know way that that process goes is well let me just say it depends on what you're seeking in terms of uh, mm, sure. relief because there's a lot of different types of relief. If you're talking about uh, tuition reimbursement cases, and I will very briefly say you do not need to be super wealthy in order to um, go to a private school and, and then get tuition reimbursement. There, That's what's called the Carter's case when you're getting tuition reimbursement where you're paying out of pocket and that's what happens. Um, but there are, there are a lot of families that have arrangements with schools private schools that um, are Connors cases, which means that uh, the school kind of takes a risk a little bit to say, this is a very strong case. You're working with an attorney. Um, we're going we're gonna to get the payment from the Department of Education if we win, and so you don't have to front the money. So that's just something I, I think is important for people to know that, and there's organizations that can help with that. Um, I know include NYC has a, a list they can provide um, if any listeners want to, to reach out. Okay, so... As far as the due process goes, if you're going for tuition reimbursement, you have to file something called a 10-day notice, 10 days before you take your child out of the school district and then place them in the um, private school. So that's like a formality. Theoretically, the Department of Education can try and make an appropriate program in that interim time period. I've, I've never heard of that. Right. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so th there's that 10-day notice is a formality. You do that, and then you can unilaterally place the child in there. And then subsequently, you would have to file a due process complaint. A due process complaint could be filed anytime. Um, it's not that it has to be filed the first day of school, for instance. Right. However, if you're looking for something called pendency, then you would want to file it the very first day of school or th that you're unilaterally placing the child in the program because pendency services go back to the date of filing, okay? So I, I don't know how much we want to get into mm -hmm. pendency, but really briefly, it's, it's the state put provision of the law mm -hmm. and it's to say, okay, if a parent is challenging the program that's being recommended for the fifth grade school year, um, but they were happy with the fourth grade school right. year, they're entitled to that fourth grade program um, until this matter gets resolved. Right. And it doesn't mean that they, are, they have to go back to fourth grade, but let's say they had a certain amount of special education teacher support services in fourth grade, 10 hours, let's say. And then for fifth grade, they say, we're going to take that away. During the pendency of the hearings, they're entitled Stays to that 10 same. hours. 
Right. So I just want to make a comment to avoid any misunderstanding. There's a lot of children in New York City that go to funded approved schools called the non-public schools. And we're not talking about that process here right now. We're talking about the schools that are not approved, not funded through the state and city, correct? That is correct. And it is a very important point because there is, um, in New York City, uh, there is a process called a CBST deferral. CBST mm -hmm. stands right. for Central Base Support Team. Mm -hmm. And in certain circumstances, at an IEP meeting, uh, everybody will agree and they'll say, look, we don't have an appropriate program within right. this public school system to to um, to meet this child's needs. So we're going to refer this to CBST, and then they will work with the family to try and find one of those state-approved non-public schools. Um, and if that's the case, you don't have to work with an attorney going exactly. forward, and it's nice and easy. Exactly. Um, so that's that's a great option, possibly. But if you know, and I've had cases where there'll be a CBST deferral, but then there's no appropriate school on that list, right. or none of the appropriate school lists, mm -hmm. uh, it's schools on the list have space for the child. In that case, you might have to unilaterally place them. Mm -hmm. I understand. If the parent, just walk us through this quickly, if the parent fails at an impartial hearing, the decision goes against them, what is their next step? Um, at that point, they, they have the right to appeal to the state review office. Um, so, like I mentioned, I think earlier, um, in New York, we have a two-tiered administrative level uh, process. So, there's the impartial hearing office uh, on what 131 Livingston Street in Brooklyn. That's where the hearings are done. Um, if, if a parent's not happy with the result there, uh, they would file an appeal with the state review office. If that comes out in a way that you're not happy with, theoretically, you can go into court. Typically, you'll go to federal court on that at the district level. Um, and uh, it's, it's unlikely that things start going past this and past right. this. But I hope the parents that are listening now don't have to this do is, that. Yes. It's just nice to know. It's good yes. to know. To, to be very clear, that is, that is very unusual. Um, usually, usually it's resolved at the administrative level. Um, so seven years, like we talked about, that is, that is completely, <laughs> that is not something that is a normal situation. So to conclude, um, it's been how long since the decision came down about, to? About two years. Two, two years. What do you think the legacy of this case will be? It's hard to really say at this point um, because, like I said, you, you, the cases are starting to now interpret it, right? Um, and just that as with Rally, it took 35 years before we really got to a point where, hey, we really need to re-examine what this is. Um, I'm hopeful that the case will help us to to have a little bit more higher standards right. in I terms of what the of what the children are entitled to, um, you know, really gearing more towards their potential. Um, so I guess we'll have to wait a little bit more and see. I think that's very exciting, though. I think most people were very happy with the outcome of this decision. That it's promising for our people, so I felt good about it. You? Yeah, absolutely. Me too. All right. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you so much. See you next time. Thank you.